Welcome to the Shilakham Extractive Podcast. I'm continuing the conversation with my guests on the subject of climate change, especially with respect to fossil fuels. My guest today is David Manley. David is a senior economic analyst with the Natural Resource Governance Institute, a think tank working on economics and governance of natural resources in developing countries. David has worked across Africa in Zambia, Tanzania, Nigeria, Ghana, and others. He has devoted the last few years of his career to understanding the impact of the energy transition on regions like Africa. David and I met a couple of years ago at Oxford University as part of the Natural Resource Charter process. David, it's lovely to speak with you again after so long, and thank you very much for indulging the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Well, thank you, Sheila. It's, it's great to be on, and it's, it's good to speak with you after so many years. That's lovely. So I, I want to avoid being presumptuous. Can you just help our listeners, uh, David? What do we mean when we say energy transition? Yeah, so the energy transition to me is is a global technological revolution. It's is I, I guess had as mankind really. Much of development history has been about how humans harness energy, and many of our industrial eras are defined by the energy that we used, whether that's the coal age or the and now we're entering this new age of renewable energy and it's it's that transition from those mainly fossil fuel energies to these new fossil fuels energies that we're calling the transition um and i kind of think of it as a technological revolution first most rather than a response to climate change because it helps to think of the different dimensions and incentives that are going on uh in this transition so, so you you see it primarily as a change in the technologies we use to generate energy. Is that what you mean by technological revolution? Yeah, it's both. It's both um, generating energy from the sun and from the wind, and in some ways we've been doing that for a long while. Like um, uh, wind turbines have been around for hundreds, I think, up to a thousand years. Photovoltaic energy is much more recent technology, um, but it's it's the it's the technologies going into this and the um, radical drop in costs of these technologies that's really been driving the transition in the last few years. Uh, things around electric vehicles, particularly, and we've all heard of and these vehicles that are also helping to to drive that uh, transition so there's the different aspects of it but yeah it's 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 a huge huge change in the way we're using these technologies hmm. so most people when they think of uh, transition to uh, clean energy and climate change uh, see the Paris agreement as essentially the driver of this and and the critics of the Paris Agreement argue that the agreement is really the Western world's way of imposing its will on emerging economies like Africa, and, and that these emerging economies are paying the price of what is a century-long environmentally unconcerned industrialization 
uh, processes and technologies in the north. Uh, what is your take uh, on this, uh, uh, if you wish, cynical view? Yeah, okay, it's a good question. Um, so, uh, in the one hand, the, the Paris Agreement is to an extent driving this transition. It's, it's giving investors and businesses the some certainty that over the next few decades, there will be a market for renewable energy in, in America, in, in Europe, in China, in Japan, and so on. And, um, and it's backed up with this, this Paris Agreement that is most countries around the world and a lot in, in Africa um, to limit or control their, their emissions. Um, but it's the, the transition is kind of independently or, 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 or a second channel to those agreements. If those agreements stop now, there will be going on and there will still be effects from that. Um, is it hurting uh, Africa? Yes, in some ways, a, a lot. Uh, uh, the, the main one for, for oil and gas producing countries, see there will be some drop in demand for, for their, their goods, whether they're uh, exporting gas or oil. And we can go into the details of how this could be impacting countries, but I think it could be very severe. Hmm. Uh, is there an upside to the scenario nevertheless? Uh, yeah, the, the biggest one is that hopefully this is going to save the world, it's going to save climate. Um, and much of Africa is at the forefront of climate. Uh, a lot of research suggests that it's countries around the equator and, and the tropics that will have the most severe weather changes. And by far, those effects will, I think, outweigh most of the economic effects from reducing fossil fuel demand. And so if the energy transition and the agreement can help limit that change, then that's a great thing that we should all be aiming for. So by that alone, it's a huge upside for, for Africa. Um, a, a smaller upside, um, but quite significant for some countries, and I think you'll be doing separate podcasts on this, is that a huge demand for metals and minerals uh, to be developing these new technologies. Um, a lot more copper, cobalt, lithium, uh, wind turbines into batteries for electric vehicles. So there could well be, and there's already signs of, very large boom in, in metal demand over the next few decades. And so this, this will yeah, benefit a lot of mining countries at least. So, so this talk then about uh, uh, stranded asset, do you feel is, is overstated? Because in, in your view, the role of minerals may well uh, compensate for this, let alone for that matter, the, the uh, you know, decarbonization of climates. Do, do, do you think uh, the commentators are blindsided on these other economic benefits? Um, I, I don't know if the rise in metals demand will completely compensate fossil fuel demand um, for two reasons. One, because the, the profits, the, the, the extra profits that oil industries make, 
a huge and they're probably always going to be much larger than the profits that, that mining countries can make. Um, it's it, you could see a compensation across the whole of Africa in in actual specific African countries. There isn't so like Nigeria is um, uh, an oil and gas rich rich in in, in metal mining. Um, so they're they're not likely to see the same economic compensation their fossil fuel demand falls as when the metal demand rises right so so it's more a regional rather than a, a country specific uh potential benefit but i mean for better or for worse the african countries did sign uh these agreements uh and so with respect to fossil fuel dependent economies does signing these agreements uh, speak of, is it counterintuitive uh, in the short term? And if it is not, so what is the driving force? What, what is the logic behind African countries and other fossil fuel dependent economies making this concession? So these, for, for a start, I think for most African countries, they're uh, NDCs, the nationally determined contributions. Um, there's two pathways that they've signed up to. One, one is conditional pathway, and one is an unconditional one. Um, uh, one is, one is um, assuming that there's no help from the the global north, um, no financial help in um, helping them cut their emissions. Um, but I just looked for Nigeria, for example, and, and even so, there, it's less than their business as usual. Um, path, but it's uh, it's still uh, the emissions can still go upwards. Um, if uh, Nigeria receives a lot of uh, to help reduce their emissions even more, there's there's a more stringent pathway, but that's conditional on getting that finance. Um, so I I don't see the NDCs being a huge end on on economic growth in Africa as it is. Um, in, in Europe and, and the more polluted countries, which is absolutely fair because it's, it's the, the global north that has caused all this damage so far. So can you just define for our listeners what you mean by NDCs? Yeah, so this is, um, and I'm less, much less of an expert on the, on the climate diplomacy and these agreements, but these are the agreements made in the Paris Agreement 2015, I think they were signed up in 2016, and what we call the Conference of Parties 21. Um, and these uh, committed uh, each country to a new pathway of emissions. And so the richer and more polluting countries are uh, committed to mainly reducing their emissions. Um, Countries like China committed to some increase and then a reduction. Uh, and then the much poorer countries, uh, say Nigeria and other countries in Africa, committed to a slightly slowing increase in, in combining all these commitments together, um, hopefully were enough to uh, help the world meet what's called the carbon budget. Um, from what I understand, it wasn't quite enough. Uh, it was getting there. Um, what is the carbon budget? Well, this this is effectively the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas um, 
humans um, are able to emit until we um, tip the, the climate beyond the point where we uh, can control uh, the global temperature. So the Paris Agreement was ideally looking to uh, limit this temperature rise to below two degrees uh, rise, and ideally close to a 1.5 degree rise. Um, we might be getting there. I, at the moment, the, the course is somewhere above two degrees. Um, that's going to be spelling a lot of problems for places in Africa, um, but it's what it could have been of four or five degrees, uh, which would be truly catastrophic. Hmm. Um, so, uh, assuming we are all on the same page in the north and the south, uh, what does preparing for uh, energy transition in petroleum-rich countries look like for you, David? Yeah, this this is a, a lot of what our research is on at the moment. So the yeah, so the the main impacts that's Angola, these these big oil exporting countries, they're facing two effects. One is um, some of the assets will be stranded. Uh, so some of the reserves that they thought they could develop um, are likely to be left in the ground as investors. Um, so you, some of these countries might see a, um, a fall, falling uh, production over time. In Ghana, are already worried that they have maybe ten years of production left um, as they um, produce their their existing fields. Where they're going to get investment to to replace those fields and carry on production, so that's that's one major worry. The other one is, I think, much larger, um, which is just a, a huge as the demand for oil and gas falls. Um, we'll see in some way or another um, a fall in price. Um, there'll be a lot of volatility around that, but term we can see a fall in price. And with that means a fall in uh, profits for the industry and a fall in government revenue for, for governments. Um, there's a, another think tank, Carbon Tracker, estimated globally this would be a fall of around $13 trillion dollars so does that mean that uh, this uh, new environmentally friendly energy sources increase cost of industrialization in the global south? In other words, is clean energy more affordable or does it come at a premium? Um, so the, the, there's been a huge drop in costs depending on how people measure it those technologies are now at least as competitive as um, gas and, and usually much more competitive than in coal generation. Um, the, the actual cost of installing a solar plant or a wind turbine has fallen dramatically. So this means that uh, for the average country in Africa, um, particularly with the, the amount of sun that's these countries get, and there's also quite a lot of wind, there's really good potential, uh, which means cheap energy. So there, there is a huge advantage of energies. Um, it also means less dependency on a fossil fuel that will eventually run out. 
I said, Ghana's worried about how they're going to get more investment to develop new fields. Um, that's not a problem for solar and wind since it's an infinitely renewable energy source. Um, so that's that's one huge advantage. There's problems of how to then actually get investment in in the first place. So uh, I'm aware that uh, the EU has put millions of euros to stimulate research into green economy related technologies. Uh, the current US uh, president through uh, his uh, proposed infrastructure bill among others is also planning uh, to spend billions to leapfrog clean technologies. My guess is that this will translate in, into a huge business uh, growth opportunity for firms in the north. And I just wondered how can countries and firms in the south also help themselves and take advantage of this potential boom in uh, clean technology related economies? Yeah, so this is a little outside my area, but these are some of the things we're, we're thinking of. Um, so the, the first of all is that there's, I guess there's two advantages that Europe and America, China are getting from this. It's one, they're just gonna be getting cheaper energy, which I've already discussed, and um, Africa can be part of that um, cheaper energy, cheap and clean energy revolution. But then there's the opportunities in actually making all this stuff. Um, and American Europe is, is also very worried about how they're tapping into this opportunity. Much of the technology is actually being built in places like China at the moment. Um, but yeah, um, being advanced developed countries, uh, North America, big advantages in, in some of these, these aspects. What can Africa do? Um, as I said, I think the the mining countries um, can really tap into this um, and really um, get the most out of this boom. And really, this comes back to much of the government's principles that the Natural Resource Charter um, um, teaches and, and helps with uh, and how to get primarily as much money um, from the sales of these metals, processing these metals. Um, it's hard to tell how that's going to play out. Um, and it's hard to see if there's any fundamental change in those opportunities now as there was over the last few years. It's hard to see, um, but uh, it's, I think as, uh, um, as demand for these things rises, there will be some, if, to the extent that Africa can start um, connecting to the supply chains in some opportunities, but it's admittedly is difficult to see. So in, in some of your works, you have referenced the role of governance and uh, that uh, poor governance in some developing countries is an impediment to successful transition. Could you explain yourself and how you see governance in the space of energy transition? Yeah, so th there's two aspects. There's 
And and it will go back to a question I didn't really answer properly um, before. For for those oil and gas rich countries, um, the the role of governance there is to really manage this this risk to um, to look ahead, make sure that uh, the governments aren't thinking that the future is going to be like the past and carry on um, assuming high oil prices and that everything's going to be fine. Um, I think there needs to be a big change in and uh, um, um, using scenarios really using um, thinking more pessimistic about um, if there is a big drop in oil and gas prices um, and a, a collapse in, in production what does that mean for their economies what does that mean for their finances and to develop plans to to respond before it's too late um, some of the work we're now is to make sure governments don't expose themselves even more to this risk and pile even more public money into the oil and gas industry um, uh, that could be appropriate in some times, but we think in many cases isn't. And the main channel for this is investing into to national oil companies. And I think you'll have a podcast more on that, so I won't go into the details, um, but I think this is an area where uh, governments could carry on with blinkers and the business as usual approach and carry on uh, putting public money into these companies uh, and not seeing returns they need to. And this, this is gonna make every, their response difficult in the long run of how to um, uh, divest and to diversify uh, their economies to, to develop industries that aren't then Um, those are some of the responses for uh, oil and gas rich countries. I think for, for African countries more generally, um, there's, there's a need of, well, how can we attract investments to, um, to develop uh, solar and wind uh, technologies? Um, and I thought, well, one of, one of the major areas, one of the constraints here is, is the governance. Um, I think those products are exported and sold in, in foreign markets. The problem for investing in a uh, solar plant in, in uh, Mozambique, for example, is that the product, the electricity is sold into the Mozambique market. And so um, this has two problems. One is, well, who's going to be buying that electricity and how can the investor, usually the foreign investor, get its money out and get the, uh, convert its local currency to, to dollars. Um, and a lot of this comes down to what we call um, off-take risk, which is the risk that, um, that that electricity can actually be bought in the local market. Uh, the either national grid or, or, or uh, consumers. Um, and uh, a lot of research suggests um, countries are um, dominated by state companies uh, that are buying the electricity, uh, but not always paying for it. Um, and so this is this will uh, a solar plant investor. Um, to the extent that governments can help sort that and make sure that there's 
uh, more of a guaranteed certain market for electricity, more likely uh, investors are going to want to actually to Mozambique or, or elsewhere. So yeah, that's, that's what I see as kind of the, the role of here. That's wonderful. Well, uh, as always, uh, governance underpins uh, everything. Uh, David, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with the Shila Kama Extractive Podcast. Uh, you've set us off to a, a, a very interesting conversation with uh, your colleague, Patrick Heller, on state-owned entities, which are, of course, some of the world's biggest uh, corporations in both the developed and uh, emerging markets. Thank you very much for your time, David. Uh, I will stay in touch. Great. Thank you, Sheila. It's been a lot of fun.